Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. My guest on today's episode of The Deep Dive is Livia Fioretti. Livia is head of global of the Global Insight Network at Trendwatching, one of the major global trend firms. She's a true polymath who, according to her friends, just does stuff. And today she's joining me on The Deep Dive to just have this conversation with me. <laughs> so welcome to The Deep Dive, Livia. How are you? Hi, Phil. Thanks for having me. Super happy to be here. Now you're in Spain, correct? Exactly. I'm currently based in Barcelona. So you're in one of my, literally one of my favorite cities in the world. So I, I have quite an affinity for this conversation already. Barcelona is the team I support. It's literally one of my favorite, favorite cities. I first went there in the mid 2000s and had so many nights completely unsuitable to discuss on the <laughs> show and subsequently have been going back for years and years and years. And there's such an incredible energy and just liveliness in Barcelona. So I'm excited to talk to someone on native soil. But beyond Barcelona, I want to, even though I, I started there on purpose, not just to talk about how great the city is, but because you relocated to Barcelona, you're Brazilian, you're from Sao Paulo. And one part of your bio like really stood out to me because there was a longer bio, but for the purposes of the show, I kind of cut things down. But I referenced it quite a bit. And you mentioned that when you moved to Barcelona, you wanted to go to a place that I'm going to get the phrasing not quite right, but it was about creativity and unlocking creativity. So I think given the work that you do, there's a perfect place to start that idea of creativity and how it got you to Barcelona. Definitely. So I started my career 10 years ago working at an ad agency back in Sao Paulo, big one. And it was amazing, an amazing opportunity. I stayed there for three years and I needed working in a planning department. I needed to understand that there was something beyond just ads <laughs> and something beyond in creativity, because that's what got me into studying advertising. I thought that, oh my, that would be an amazing combination of market, of, well, having a career that I can pay my bills with. And also try to, to work with something creative. And when I really got to the job, I saw that that was not the reality. And what really, really caught my attention beyond what I was doing like uh, on a normal basis was trend reports. So I was super excited at the time of the month in which we received some trend reports and I got to read them. And that's when I understood that future was also a market in that sense. And I was so surprised by the fact that people lived out of writing trend reports that I found, well, a master, I had the opportunity to come to Barcelona to study. And then I moved to do my master's degree here in design and global trends. And it was an amazing experience. And it was a really fun one because uh, being a Brazilian in Spain, I didn't speak Spanish when I moved here. I didn't speak Catalan when I moved here. 
So it was quite hard for me when I understood that I really wanted to, I share your passion um, for Barcelona. I found myself in here and I really wanted to stay. And there's such an atmosphere in here when it comes to creativity. So it's funny because you can go from, I don't know, a, a music festival to an open air cinema. And then you talk to people from all over the world. It really showed me the world. So I have this really big and important attachment to the city because it really showed me that there was more beyond just, yeah, on when it comes to, to creativity. And this idea of trends and, you know, living in the future, there's another line from your bio that I thought was really interesting where you said you're living in the future by default. And you know, I underlined that actually several times in my notes, like the word default, because I, I really wanted to to give you an opportunity to talk about what you mean by that statement. That's a good question. <laughs> I have those every once in a while. <laughs> Besides the fact that I'm quite anxious and I drink too much coffee, <laughs> which kind of drives me to another dimension, I have to say. I guess that's a state of mind in a sense. It comes when you try to look beyond stuff. So trying to look beyond what's something, what, for instance, talking about trends, what an innovation means. It's not about the innovation, but it's about the expectations that this is driven by this innovation. So it's about seeing something on the news and understanding that's not about something that's been, I don't know, in the news on that Friday at that time. It's about what will that mean? So it's about the way you see at the world and at society and at life at large that kind of brings you to the state of mind of, as I define it, living in the future by default. And the future is a very big word. It's a word that has tangible meaning in the sense that if you're thinking about it from a linear perspective, each moment is a moment in the future when you're thinking about it in a more intangible, perhaps philosophical way, it's a point or rather points unknown to us. Anything unknown comes with certain risks and challenges in terms of how we perceive it. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to really walk through those two realities of the future in any way that they approach the work that you do because just adding a little a little bit more to that some more color to that i think there is a tendency in what the future's business the sort of the industry of the future to look at these things as commercial opportunities rather than a more social construct so that in the back of my head that's where that question comes from so i want to give you a chance to kind of talk about that intangible and or tangible part of the future? It is uh, something to think about, especially because, of course, when talking about future, as you said, there's this commercial opportunities on how brands can play out into, well, a scenario or you as a business, what can you do? So we need to have the future in mind for exactly everything we do. But at the same time, we need to acknowledge that there is this bigger role, and that is something that is so, so important that there's this thinking about the future and working with it comes with responsibility as well. So that's why I think it's 
super fundamental to acknowledge futures. Working with it, we usually speak about futures in plural because, as you said, it's something that haven't happened, hasn't happened yet. It's something that brings a lot of opportunities and different possibilities. But I guess when it comes to working with trends and innovations and trying to, well, think of speculative scenarios and other kinds of methodologies to think about the future, we need to have a deep, deep layer of social knowledge and empathy and purpose. So at Trend Watching, for instance, we try to have this layer, our methodology is called purpose-driven methodology, sorry, purpose-driven innovation, because it's exactly about that, innovating, coming from the, in which the first point is the purpose. But for me, it's beyond just purpose. It's about empathy. It's about understanding the possibility of these futures. It's not about what can happen or what cannot, but who are you thinking? Who do you have in mind when thinking about the future? Because I guess that's the thing. It is about the target. So if you are working, for instance, talking about the commercial way, Working with a company, who is this target? Who is this purpose being thought about? Is it for uh, overlooked collectives or people that are the ones that will make the money out of the solution that you're trying to come up with? So it's something that you really need to to have in mind working in this business. And empathy is clearly one of the more important human traits and capabilities. It's something that I use quite often as a counter argument to those who feel we are purely competitive creatures. But nonetheless, it's one thing to talk about empathy. You know, it's used by many organizations that are far from empathetic. I'm sure if we were to probably pull back the lens of a boardroom of ExxonMobil or Amazon, you know, some other company that's kind of destroying the planet, we would see somebody talk about like, well, we're doing our business from a empathetic way, right? So I say all that to say that these in practice, how does one, when you're looking at a subject, when you're looking at a market, when you're thinking about the future in a practical way, how does empathy really get built into that process so it lives beyond the meaning of the word? So considering like my work on a daily basis, for me, empathy gets in the moment in which we look beyond typical markets. So for instance, at Trend Watching, we have the global trend report that we publish once or twice a year, depending now with the pandemic and the situation being so unstable, we decided to publish two trend reports because one was not enough and we couldn't commit to kind of trying to draw the future trends on a larger time scale. But for me, empathy comes when we work on the global, on the, the local trend reports. So when you try to look, for instance, as Latin America or to Africa, because these are usually the regions that are mostly affected by the big issues of capitalism, in a sense. So I think when we try to look beyond exactly, as I said, Amazon and how they're profiting and what the impact that they're having is really what does that mean to people that are usually overlooked when it comes to business? I just brought this because we published this piece of content. But for instance, when we try to draw trends, thinking of specific collectives or on older people, and because it's not about technology, it's about how you can better serve customers. And I think that we need to, there's a big, big movement, uh, especially that you see 
flourishing in, for instance, in Latin America about decolonizing these futures, because we still try to create this concept based on ideas that come from an American or an European point. And there are so many new realities and so many new futures that we can build based on different starting points and on different ideologies that I think for me, that's empathy is looking beyond what you are expecting to people that you really need that kind of thought. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an amazing point. And I love the fact that you did bring up the Latin American report or the most recent one and the and the Africa report, because I was fortunate enough to be able to take a look at those and read through them. I always warn my guests, like, I read everything. So it's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of like if I don't know, everyone's professors are different, kind of going through their educational experience, thinking about school. And I always remember because I was in a lot of like technical engineering schools growing up. And, you know, when you're about to take like a final exam, you'd always try to pin the professor down on like, well, what's the exam going to cover? You know, and so many of my professors, their standard response back was anything that I've given you as material (laughs) is open game for the final or the midterm or whatever it was. You know, I'd be like, damn it. I was hoping for something (laughs) a little bit more specific than that. But I guess I have to go with everything. But I won't be that broad with the report, but quite a few things struck me and I'll, I'll use one of them as like a big question and then one of them as a little question or a, a littler question. The first one is what really struck me as I went through both reports was the emphasis on the reaction to these forces that you talked about, whether it's COVID, which has affected all of us. So I guess the world is sort of reacting to that. And then also like the global piece of capitalism acting on these places. And so how are local communities that are in and of themselves, like these are big places, and then we're kind of picking spots, right? How they're navigating and thriving through that. So I'm curious if you also saw some of the same elements or things, but that's what kind of leaped out to me. Then the second piece of that was, as I was going through the reports, I was like, I'm curious, how come this work isn't done in the reverse? And maybe it is, and I don't know, but maybe there's, is there like a future shop in Nigeria or Peru that's like North America, what's going on there? Or like, you know, Nordic countries, what's happening? 2050, right? Like, I'm just curious <laughs> as to how it, it seems to me from, and this is not pertaining to just trend watching. I've seen, I've seen this for like, as long as I've been in this business, right? That the Western world will reflect on the future of Southern places, whether Latin America, Africa, Asia, but I've rarely seen it in the reverse. And that could just be a function of my not having seen it. It might exist and I don't know. So I'm curious about both those things. So kind of a bigger question than like a kind of a quirky, smaller question built into that. (laughs) Oh, I don't think the second one is any smaller. In fact, I think it's much bigger. Yeah, I was was hoping that I was trying (laughs) to sneak that in there so it wouldn't sound like I was being heavy. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I think that's an amazing, amazing question because that's what we mean when we talk about decolonizing these futures. And why is the starting point the Western and Nordic 
more than anything perspective that we bring south. And that's where the magic lies for me, because I think personally, the solutions that are portrayed on these reports are much, much more innovative than the technological ones. So for me, it's not about reaction. It's about how, well, from my, I can talk about more Latin America because it's the place that I study and it's where I'm from and where my heritage and my culture is. And one thing that really, really makes me fall in love every time when I see something that comes from Latin America is the creativity. Because I know we don't have as many resources but we have much more creativity to work with the resources we have. And therefore, for me, these innovations and these, what you call reactions, which for me are creations, they have so much more value than purely technology or a new app or a new software. It's interesting, like for instance, on my master, for my master, my final project was about Cuba and about how spotting trends in Cuba. And that was a really fun one. I did my master back in 2016, so five years ago. But the group was amazing. The group were two Brazilian women, a guy from the Czech Republic, another Mexican guy, and one from Thailand. And we had different backgrounds, but none of us have ever been to Cuba. We didn't know anyone that was Cuban. And how do we spot trends in a country that, well, we can't even get information from there because, well, of the whole system situation in which, well, it was a really, really big challenge. And one thing that really got my attention and for me, well, you know how, well, in Cuba, people don't have, as far as I know, they don't have as much of access, of free internet access as most countries in the Western world do, but they have something that's called the Paquete Semanal, which is a pen drive and people that go to places and to people's homes with news, films. It's kind of Netflix, um, I don't know, the newspaper, the, the news, the um, everything that you have, even porn, if I'm not mistaken, but everything. It's on a hard drive that you go from one house to another and then you just, copy that information. And for me, that's so amazing considering the context. So for me, the reaction, it's not that element of the reports, um, Latin America and Africa, for instance, that they react to the trends that are established by Europe and North America. But the way that in a global world, we need to interact and we have different paces, but we collectively, we share the planet. It's about how we, with more creativity due to a lack of resources or culture, even like to a specific culture in which you treat things differently and you react different to them, you can come up with innovative stuff. And for me, that's just amazing. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm smiling because I've, I've not been to Cuba, but a lot of friends I really cherish have spent time there. And it is really interesting. I've heard the flash drive and I've seen it and seen it discussed. And one of the things that strikes me about that example is how sometimes the technology is like somewhat innocuous technological changes can deeply affect things like what you describe. Like I think about from a Western perspective, many laptops are focused on like being lighter and thinner and the way in which they're doing that is to get rid of like the ports for things like 
flash drives, right? So it, it's, it's just interesting. Like I, I always think about that, like how there's these sort of ripple effects that happen in many places. And then the, the nerd in me, it takes me back to like Battlestar Galactica, like the second, <laughs> the second series where like the only reason why their ship was able to survive this attack is because it wasn't attached to the network. So it was kind of like it was this analog ship in a network world, and that's the only thing that saved. <laughs> that saved them. So I'm always thinking about the technology versus the the digital way in which we work versus the analog way in which sometimes there's there's survival in there. But I think that kind of leads me into this other idea that I really wanted to get to, and it's a it's a conversation that I'm constantly having as someone who is focused on culture. And I think about your team that you described when you were doing this project. And it sent to my ears, it sounds like, oh, this is the most amazing team ever, right? Like it's all different people. And you know, I could kind of picture like the late night sessions, which maybe were good or bad, depending on everyone's mood, because we've all kind of worked in teams late night. But I say all that to say that it's this incredible opportunity to bring people and different cultures together to build something, to discover something, to unlock something, then there's parts of me that see us, us being the collective us, like slipping more and more into monocultures. And so um, I'm curious if that is just something that I'm feeling and maybe some other people that I chat with <laughs> through all the various ways in which we chat that it, this becomes like a very concerning thing. Or am I missing something in that analysis? No, I think that's an accurate analysis. But at the same time, I think culture, it's so broad that in some elements that you might bring into the conversation that you have, and it just makes the whole process different and that changes. The more cultures that you have been touched with, I think that just adds up and that kinds um I know that sometimes it might, like too many people learning too much at the same time, it might get a bit homogeneous. But still, I think that there's such an important element. And just coming back to the training reports, for instance, they were made collectively with a network of people that we have all over the world. So from my position, I wouldn't be able, for instance, to write about the African continent, considering that I don't have a direct connection or I haven't been uh, to that continent yet. So I think on that experience, bringing to the, the process of writing the report was amazing because we managed to collect two groups from people from, I guess, we were like nine different countries and we created one channel to exchange music. And I didn't know, for instance, that uh, we couldn't share Spotify because there are some countries in Africa, they don't have access to that service. So we had to share YouTube videos. And the way that that whole experience, just by adding an element of culture, of like entertainment that were music videos and series that we were just exchanging between us, that gave us a whole different perspective on what we were writing. So it was amazing to see that still, we had like that kind of mix and match and but everyone adding that bits and pieces and a bit of themselves just added up to the conversation and i have to say that i learned i think more in the process of talking to those people that even i don't know on the process of researching or something that 
we kind of do on a more standardized way. So I think, yes, but at the same time, we have these elements that we cannot forget that still add up to the conversation. And, you know, I want to keep on that track for a little bit because I think so much about how these things operate on two different levels, at least two different levels, right? There's probably multi-layered types, ways in which the exchange in which you described works. But I think about like the meaning behind something where to just use your example, you know, it can be a video or something that you share that's that's music. You know, music is one of those, I think one of the most critical connections that we have because it works in a different way than most other mediums. You know, in my personal opinion as a music person, like I don't need to know the language to feel the music, right? Totally, 100%. But, at, but like with film, another vehicle that I really like, if it's not subtitled and I don't speak the language, then I'm going to miss it, right? And, and even subtitles are imperfect because sometimes I watch stuff and I know the subtitle and I'm like, that's not what they said, right? <laughs> you know, because they... Totally, totally. You know, because totally. as, as someone who's West Indian, oftentimes in some movies or even English, like they'll, because I have a lot of family in the UK, they'll subtitle English accents, <laughs> yeah. even in American shows, or they'll subtitle... West Indians, usually like their default is Jamaicans, even though I'm not Jamaican, but like West Indies is like Jamaica to like Western people. And they'll subtitle like an accent. And I'm like, that's not at all what that dude just said. Right? <laughs> and this is and this is English. So understanding that my analogy is somewhat imperfect, but I'm wondering about those meanings and those subtexts that exist under the layer when it becomes more than the thing that is shared, that cultural significance, you know, yeah. I find that communities have like coded languages, right? As someone who grew up in hip hop, you can listen to a song, but if you don't know the reference, if you don't know the context of what the person is talking about, it doesn't really make no. It doesn't hit you the There's same way. Entropy, exactly. There's this entropy that just like sucks everything in, and you just you just misses the whole symbol and the the, the significance of that. Yeah. So I'm, that conversation. So I'm curious, like, did did you feel and experience that? Was some of that learning about really the explanation? You know, because I I love the explanation. <laughs> yes. So luckily, I as I'm fluent, well, I'm native Portuguese speaking, but I'm fluent in Spanish as well. I got to understand that exactly what you just said. So as I live in Spain and I learn Spanish here, my Spanish is super Spanish, but it's not super Latin. And I actually have a funny story about that, but we can talk about that later. But it was amazing to see that, like, for instance, on that group, I try to speak to people in the language that they feel most comfortable with most comfortable with if I can. So uh, in Portuguese, if I have like Brazilian folks that not on the big conversation, because we usually speak in English to generate more insights uh, between the countries. But if I'm chatting one-to-one with one of those potters to ask something that like, I don't know, more details about something interesting that they said in the conversation, I try to do that in Portuguese and or in Spanish if I'm talking to someone from Mexico, Colombia, Peru, Bolivia, or any of the other participants that we had. And it was amazing to see that sometimes I would use a word and they would reply something back that I need to read a lot to understand, but I learned so much. 
And there's also this point about the colonization of what we were just talking about on how important it is for me to also learn those words and those significance to be more empathic and to talk to them on a more personal and closer level. As I said, as I don't have so much touch and experience with the Africa content, uh, not the continent, with the content that they were sharing, it was amazing because we wouldn't mind about asking what exactly what that was or what that meant. And for instance, someone once shared, I think it was like a top five, I don't know, weekly top five songs from their country. And it was amazing because they were so different and I learned so much. And it was just the fact that to know that those were the top five songs that people in that country were listening that day, that kind of um, made me imagine, for instance, the temperature that was doing, if it was sunny, if it was not, if to, to really understand a bit more about what they were feeling and the environment that they were in just by the music. And this is something that I think, as I said, that channel was like the funnier and the most enriching channel from all the process. I'll add English as one of those languages that you're fluent in, by the way. Yeah, true. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, it would be, we'd be hard pressed to have that conversation if not. It's, if not. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm learning some Italian now, none of which I'm going to do on this call. So, um, <laughs> or in this conversation, but it is. It is daunting to learn mm -hmm. a new language, particularly when you are, one, the age that I am, and also when this is both a gift and a curse of being a native English speaker that I can, and I've traveled a lot, and it's rare that I have been anywhere where people cannot speak some semblance of English, Yeah, um, which means for me, that my world becomes more frictionless when I'm on the road, because as I get through certain points, major points of entry and points of service, people will at least be able to do the basics, right? Whereas yeah. I can't do the basics at all, right? Like I can't go to Thailand and ask you, how are you? How is your day? Right? Very simplistic statements. And they can reflect that to me and much more. So I'm always, you know, quite aware of that sort of ability. And I don't take it for granted, unlike most Americans who travel and are completely abhorrent to, <laughs> to be around. But nonetheless, I want to, what you surfaced in that is kind of in a way brings me back to the monoculture piece, because as much as monoculture from a creativity point is something that, again, is always like nagging at me. There is a, a beauty, I think, in finding the threads through which we have some common ground. So I'm curious, not just in the most recent report, but as you've, you're someone who has clearly traveled, you do this for a living, spend a lot of time thinking about these things. A, do you find that there are some common elements to our experiences? So that's kind of the part one. Or, and in to the extent that you do, how does one surface that and or make some connection to that? That's complicated. <laughs> I think like beyond consumers, we're all people and we're all trying to, we all in a sense have like similar goals. 
the point is that we have different means to achieve things. So, of course, I think that's quite complicated in a sense that you need to understand people's origins and there's so much respect about even in the same culture, like the layers of privilege. There's so, so many layers of privilege that I think it is amazing how people, yeah, I, I don't know, <laughs> how people in Brazil are trying to achieve the same thing that, for instance, people in Spain, but the means to do that is quite different and how you need to fight or to try to achieve things. It's much more harder for someone, especially uh, if they're not from a privileged family in Brazil, that from someone that is not in a privileged family here in Spain. So that's something that even with my friends weekly, we kind of have like not, it's not that we disagree, but there's this cultural layer in which people, if they are from one context, sometimes it's hard for them to understand other contexts. And that's something that, funny enough, when you're not speaking your native language, that's also something harder to explain. So one example, for instance, my partner, he's Spanish, and we would discuss the colonization every single week. We would have a fight over this subject. And when he came to Brazil to visit, it was the first time that he left Europe. He really understood why I was so pissed about colonization and why that was something that was important for me. So I think that, as you said, people are traveling and I see the point that the curse and the, the blessing that it is being a native speaker is because sometimes you have to also just, as I know, to accept an accent and to accept your own accent for me was something at least that it had to work a lot. I thought that I didn't have, like, for some time that my opinion was not so important as another one because I had an accent. And now I see that as another layer of this uh, accent is culture. So it's another layer of culture. But it's this kind of stuff. I guess we're traveling more, but from back from the beginning, or what we were just saying, we need to be more empathic and to really, like, be open to this kind of, like, differences. Because we're looking for the same thing and we are similar in a sense, but with different culture. And that's just amazing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, accents are, you know, yeah, that's another thing that like, I'm kind of like railing on how things are here because I think folks are impatient when it comes to things like that. Because everyone has an accent, right? Like yeah. In, in, you know, yeah, true, to, true. To the point that I've had this conversation with folks before where I'm like, accents don't exist. Right. Because everyone has it. Right. Depending on where you are. Right. As if I go to another part of the United States, people are going to be like, oh, you're not from here because you sound different from being in like Nebraska. Not that I would ever be in Nebraska, but <laughs> you know, just pick the most place that I would likely never be. Right. And the same goes for every, any situation. Right. Like if yeah. I if I land today in Moscow, then people are going to be like, okay, this dude sounds like he's American, <laughs> he's American right? Or he's an English speaker or whatever it's going to yeah. be. There's going to be an accent. And I'm with them and I'm like, oh, you haven't, you sound like you're stereotypically Russian, right? Or <laughs> Yeah, actually the story that I said, like we need to come back to this later, it, it's related to accent. Mm -hmm. So, well, working at Trend Watching, one of the, the things that we need to do is, well, to give presentations and, well, I've traveled 
I well, I had the lucky, I was lucky enough to travel a lot uh, doing presentations at events. And right before the pandemic in November 2019, I went to Ecuador to present at an event uh, with a colleague that he was British living in the U.S. And, well, it was a really amazing trip, met the most amazing people, culture. And I had the opportunity, well, to share the stage with this colleague of mine. And it was something unplanned. But we had a problem with translation at one part of that, not the event, but the whole touch point between the brand and people that my colleague told me, if you want, you can present the last trend for 1,200 people in the, on stage tomorrow, and you can do that in Spanish. But okay, I had 24 hours to translate the trend, to change the deck, to learn exactly the innovations and how I would say that and say that. And I remember I spent the whole day in the room, locked, trying to memorize and to do my part and to learn. And then there's this, for public speakers, there's also this moment, always this moment in which you are being mic'd and then you see the stage from the back and then you are with the staff and like, now you get in 10, 9, 8, and then you're just panicking. Okay, my colleague left the stage. I got up and then I saw 1,200 people and I was like, okay, change. I was thinking in English because I was speaking to, to people in English. Okay, now change to Spanish. And I was so nervous, but I managed to give my 20-minute session in Spanish. I, was, I didn't throw up. I didn't faint. I was super proud of myself. And then when I stooped down, my colleague said, well, I don't speak Spanish, but I think you rocked it. I was, thanks. That's amazing. But then after I was like on that adrenaline rush, and then people came and talked to me, and the only thing, they didn't ask anything about the trend that I was presenting. The only thing people asked me was like, how can someone Brazilian have such a Spanish accent, like Spanish from Spain? So I was like, oh my gosh, I was dying to give this in Spanish. But as I was speaking in another Spanish, people were not listening to me. They were just trying to think how a Brazilian can have such a Spanish Spanish. So that kind of like, that was such a big insight. And I think that was the moment in which kind of I was like, okay, <laughs> that's it. L language, it's one of those things we can pick up on it right away. I think I think that's absolutely brilliant, right? Um, <laughs> it kind of speaks to that theory. You know, it's, if it's something we all have and deal with, then it's something that none of us really have, right? It's, it's, sort, of, it's sort of very <laughs> contextual. And um, if your ear develops in a particular way, then you'll kind of pick it up. We're going to have to have a whole separate conversation about accents because I've been talking about this a lot in the context of um, films here in the United States and British actors doing American roles, particularly when British Black actors doing American Black roles and you know, is that cool? Like, how does that work? And there's a whole bunch of other stuff. There's, I can make a whole show <laughs> that we won't that we won't get into. But I do want to stay as I'm looking at the time and I'm looking at us wrapping. You know, we have two more segments to get to the show. There are a couple of high points that I want to make sure that I get to, and one of them is about signals, right? Like I always say that there's, I don't say this, many people say this, right? That there, you know. <laughs> strong signals and weak signals and mm -hmm. how do 
you know, in your work, in how you think about things, like how do you distinguish between a strong signal and a weak signal in terms of its ability to be a meaningful trend? And what I mean by that is just for clarity for listeners is that sometimes there's signals out there that are really strong, like they're very present, but they don't lead to a shift. And then there's things that are so-called weaker, which really just means they're less correlated to other things that become incredibly powerful and they do cause shifts. So I'm curious, like, how do you distinguish between those things and try to determine, you know, where should I be paying my attention in all of these things that I'm seeing, hearing, coming in contact with? So for me, there's no such thing as a weak or a strong signal. What there is, is their relation with two elements. One are uh, customers' basic needs and people's basic needs. So if they tackle a basic need, they're most likely to evolve, to generate an expectation on the mind of this person or to get involved in some kind of trend and the driver of change. So it's a lot about context and a lot about if how uh, that relates to a person's basic needs. So for instance, if you have an innovation, a signal that only meets a basic need, but does not meet the context or the driver or a driver of change, that will just be more of the same. It won't evolve. So it will just stay. You don't really need to pay much attention to it because it's not evolving with society. At the same time, if you have a signal that only connects to a specific moment in time, specific context, a driver of change, that will be a fed because it doesn't feel any basic need. So it doesn't feel your customer's needs. It doesn't generate expectations. So for me, the secret uh, to know if it's something it's most likely to evolve or to try is to see exactly if they meet those two elements, if they meet a basic need, and they're also relevant to that context and take into account uh, change and cultural change, social change, political change, and so on. And, you know, that, that brings me to sort of the art versus science part of this work. You know, there's quite a few organizations out there or thinkers out there that, you know, they're, in their minds, all of the way in which we're thinking about the world is a function of data sets. That if I just get more information and kind of mine or sweep, whatever sort of extractive language that's used, all of these places, right? I can just kind of sweep Google or sweep Twitter or whatever, Instagram, and just kind of capture all these hashtags that it will tell me something about the world that speaking to people doesn't tell me, doesn't reveal. So I'm curious about how, what you think about that notion. And you know, I'm not trying to distill it to a quantitative, qualitative argument, which is yeah. where it, this conversation tends to live. I actually, my own opinion, see it in a far more like different way in which those viewpoints align with the world. Um, so I'm curious about how you think about that to whatever extent you do. And then that will kind of lead me into my next question. <laughs> so for instance, at Trend Watching, we don't ask customers anything. We try to analyze expectations 
that come from the interaction with innovations and with other trends. So that's neither qualitative nor quantitative. So I just wanted to state because there are middle ground, there are gray zones between that discussion. But I think even if it's you're looking at uh, data scrapping or if you're looking at marketing researches, we're only taking a look at a cut of the story. And that's the thing. If you want to find a statistic that says, A, you can find it, you can find your own means to tell that story. And if you're looking for B, the same. So it's more a matter of knowing the story you want to tell because it's neither art nor science. It's not science because it's not specific, because every kind of data, it is a cut of the story. And the way you're telling that data, it is a story. So you cannot shift that apart. But at the same time, it's not art because it's real. We're talking about people. The point is that I think we're so much more complex than that, that it depends a lot on what you want to say and as I said, the story you want to tell. Don't know if that answers your question. It, it does kind of speak to, again, that these issues are, are complex. And I think those of us who are thinking about issues around our viable futures are in the complexity business. By the definition, there's no one way to do this, right? There's no one way to think about these things. And it kind of leads me into my other point, which is this idea around, you know, and, and just a little bit of, of me putting some context to it that I think about, you know, 10, 15 years of doing work like this, that brands and marketers and folks like that were always looking for what was cool. Right. Like I think this sort of, you know, kind of bastardized concept of cool. And I'm wondering now if cool is cool anymore. You know, <laughs> are we in a place where the word has been used so much and the culture is in such a place that cool is almost meaningless? I agree. I'm not I sure, think... but <laughs> No, no, I think it's not, I wouldn't say meaningless, but I wouldn't say we, it's not about cool, but it's about cools in plural. <laughs> I don't know even if that's a thing, but still. <laughs> it's, I think, like, for instance, democratization of social media, cool was always related to early adopters, influencers, but at a point in which everyone can be an influencer, considering how we popularize that concept or that role, in a sense, I think cool is an attitude, if we can put it that way, but still is in your context, what's the story you want to tell? So for a brand, in which side they're taking, what's their positioning, how they can be cool inside that sphere. For a person, what's your context? What's your position? What are your beliefs? How can you be cool around your surroundings or with in your environment? It's, again, about understanding empathy, understanding context, and this plurality, but as I said previously, it's about futures in plural. It's a complex world right now. So we're living in such an amazing time to be that I think we have more freedom. And at the same time, we're more trapped. I would say a expression, but I remember it's not the right language. So just step here. Okay. <laughs> just stop here. <laughs> no, I, I think we, you know, in the same way we have viable futures, plural, we can have um, many different types of cools, with also with an S, you know, and I'm sort of working this out, even as I ask the question, right? Like, I don't really 
no to be honest. So just a little bit of like field therapy. I wrote an essay maybe a year, maybe 18 months ago, talking about like approximations of things. And social and, and technology to me just kind of always felt like an approximation of a thing in, in the sense that if I go to a show and I talk about that show, I'm, I'm trying to capture a moment that is really uncapturable, uncapturable, right? Like the picture, the video, the words that I might share has nothing to do with what's happening in the moment that I'm doing it. And I feel that way when I watch like parodies of things, right? Like easy example, but Chrissy Teigen released like this video. I forgot what she was calling herself, but she was basically being like a fake influencer. Like, so she was acting like she was somebody else supporting her own brand. And it was just, a, in a way, the parody was a perfect approximation of an entire culture where the minute I heard it and saw it, I was like, okay, I know exactly what this is going to be. And once you can do that, I wonder if the thing that you're approximating is even relevant anymore, right? I, I don't know. I'm just, I don't even know if that was a question. As much as, <laughs> much as just a, a random thought masquerading as a question because I raised my voice at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely. As, yeah, I think it's such a plural and complex environment that it depends. Yeah. But I agree. I think that's quite one of the, the biggest issues right now for people when if they want to tie their identity back to what they think is cool or to brands, what they can do. So I think there this question and this point of inflection also brings opportunities for us to rethink what cool means and to give new meanings to this word and to well, this whole idea, you know, this concept, because it's not much about the work, but about the concept itself. Yeah. Well, one thing we know is that we're both cool. So that's all that. That's all. <laughs> that's for sure. That's all that matters. So I, w- I want to get to the final two segments of the show, which is Off the Dome and The Drop. And Off the Dome are just some, you know, rapid fire questions. And there's not 10. I think I have three down here. And then we'll get to the final segment. So we're getting close to the end here. Oh, no. I know, I know. But you know, like <laughs> I said, a cakewalk, right? So I mentioned at the beginning of this that you are a polymath. You're someone who's engaged in many different things beyond the work that you do. And I love that energy. So if you had to express yourself in only one medium going forward, what would that medium be? Oh, analog collages. So now you have to kind of give us an idea of what that is. When I hear the word collage, I think of Romeo right? So, um, I- yeah. Um, if I would have to express myself, I would do in what I do in the evenings that I turn off my computer and I, well, cut and paste paper from different magazines from different countries. So, I guess that's a really nice way to talk about culture in a sense. When you are telling your own story using materials that were already prefabricated. And come from different places, I guess that's my way to express myself. Yeah, that's an awesome way to do it. You're also extremely well-traveled. So what place or country that you visited, if you could choose one, would you relocate to? Oh, wow. That's complicated. Well, I just relocated. I was living in the UK and moved back to Spain. But if I would have to move again... Oh, I have to say, I would love to live in Ecuador. That was a place that really got my attention. Yeah, the culture, the people, the food. Yeah, I would like to spend some time there. Yeah. That would be amazing. Yeah, it's interesting when you can touch a place and you feel like 
really at home. Like it's odd when it happens. I've had similar circumstances, not yeah. Ecuador because I haven't been there yet, but um, <laughs> I spent a lot of time in Turkey in 2019 and um, um, I was like, yeah, it's Istanbul. I think I could rock with this place, you know, like <laughs> it's chaotic and it's messy, but it's also like super cool. So shout out to all the Turkish folks that are listening to the show. Um, <laughs> and then my final off the dome is what do you think a person that's engaged in your work, what is the one tool that you think they need to have? Curiosity. And we have an uh, expression in Portuguese. Now I will use it. Uh, that is cara de pau. That means literally uh, someone that doesn't, it's not afraid of like being silly or whatever. And you just do things fearless in a sense. It's just like, no, just trying. Uh, and I would say like the curiosity and the, fear, the um, courage to try things out. I guess that's the, the most important characteristic. I think that's an important characteristic for many things, not just not yeah, just definitely. not just the work. <laughs> so here's here's an ode to fearlessness. That's awesome. So now we're gonna get to the drop. And again, the drop can be anything. I call them intellectual morsels, but I think that makes it sound far more weighty and serious than it needs to be. It can literally be anything that you feel or we feel our listeners should know about or interact with or share or spend some time. So I have a drop and I'm well, I have two actually, and I'm sure you have at least one because I asked. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so you were prepped for this. It's not coming out of nowhere. So, do you want me to go first, or do you want to go first? Um, I want to do to go first because mine's quite silly. But I guess that we need some kind of silly entertainment right now because well, life has been intense. Yeah. So if you are, it's Friday today. So if you don't have anything to do after work, I imagine we don't have much places to go, many places to go because, well, COVID. But if you have Netflix, I would like to recommend a series that is a Brazilian series called Invisible City. And it brings all the characters of the Brazilian folkloric culture into a silly, entertaining uh, Netflix one season series so invisible city would be my my recommendation okay i'm i'm gonna add that to my queue immediately when we get off here my drop i have two like i said one is a film called um sound of metal which i i watched here in the in the u.s i watched it via i want to say amazon so even though i do shit on amazon a lot i do use amazon so a little bit of just Ugh, frustration there. Um, but nonetheless, <laughs> a, amazing movie. I know we just had the Oscars. At the time that we're recording this, the Oscars would have been passed a week by the time folks are listening to this. The Oscars would have been like a month ago. But nonetheless, I thought it was of many of the movies that I saw this year that were kind of in that Oscars conversation. Not that the Oscars is the one barometer for whether or not a movie is good or not, but we'll use it as a proxy. This was the one that I've thought about and reflected on the most. For many reasons, I'm not gonna give the plot away because I hate when people do that, but I would highly recommend folks catching um, Sound of Metal and however you can do that, wherever you are in the world. And finally, Arundhati Roy, she's someone who is, I constantly talk about intellectual superhero of mine. She wrote a collection of essays last year called Azadi, and I've read it now probably three times and I keep coming back to different ideas in it. So I would recommend Azadi from Arundhati Roy. And those are my two drops. Great. 
And on that note, we are done. I, I, Livy, I really want to thank you for joining me and kind of breaking your Barcelona afternoon to talk to me here in Brooklyn. It's been a, a great conversation and I, I want to thank you for being on the deep dive with me. Uh, thank you for the invitation. This was amazing. As I said on the, well, on the backstage that I was quite nervous, but thanks. This was super fun, super insightful. And yeah, can't wait to talk to you again. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.